guys? This is the Async Podcast. My name is Arneet Singh, and I'm your host. Uh, first of all, thank you if you did listen to the last episode that I did with uh, director Ned Record from Hollywood Shakespeare, whose new movie, The Dark Places, is coming out on Amazon very soon. Uh, Ned and I recorded for like two hours the other day (laughs) and uh in the first episode we talked about the new movie and uh the fact that it was filmed completely during quarantine uh in april the craziness uh through zoom and and it's a really creative endeavor that uh not a lot of people could have pulled off but he did and uh you know so make sure to check it out when it comes out the other part of the podcast that we did was talking about some of our favorite rewatchable movies, such as The Fall, Knives Out, Snakes on a Plane, and a f- and many more. Uh, so if you want to hang out with two cinephiles who uh, love movies and can talk about the philosophy, regardless of its prestige, check this one out. You're going to have a lot of fun. And uh, without further ado, on to part two. The other reason that I wanted to bring you onto the podcast is because one of the things that you and I have always gelled on, always been able to talk like literally for hours about is movies and movie history. And not just, not just about, you know, whether we were entertained by them or not, but like really dive into the nitty gritty. And I think one of the things that a lot of people are turning to during quarantine just for a sense of comfort is movies they've already seen. Like, forget about Tiger King and all the other stuff that streaming sites are pumping out to to get viewership on new content. The movies that we love are the ones that we're going to because they give us a sense of relief, a sense of home. And so we have, you and I kind of bounced around talking about a couple of movies that we wanted to talk about. and I thought we could just go through it. Like, what's what's better than talking about shit we've seen a million times? We know it inside and out. Um, and let's start with the first one, which is actually a movie that you turned me on to, The okay. Fall. I turned a lot of people onto that one. Yeah, Tarsum Singh directed, uh, starring Lee Pace, who is maybe one of the most underrated actors of his generation. I think you and I can agree on that. Um, oh, no, I need to get famous just so I can cast it. <laughs> He's so good. I, um, me and my mom started watching Halt and Catch Fire uh, a couple of weeks ago. And I mean, I, okay, first of all, I didn't realize he was six foot freaking five. He's a giant. He's a large human being. Secondly, that voice has so much gravitas. Yeah. It's, it's deep. It's commanding. It's, oh my God. But The Fall is one of the most beautiful movies I've ever watched. Tell the people about it. It, it kind of, it kicks off this topic that when Arneet was like, what do you want to talk about? I'm like, I want to talk about the rewatchability of movies. Because I feel like so many movies I see, I'll watch once to go, oh, that was great. And then I start watching them a second time and I just turn them off. I'm like, I can't do this. I can't do this. <laughs> and the more I think about them, the more I start hating them. I'll use Moulin Rouge as a perfect example of a movie that I loved it in the theater. I laughed. I cried. Mm-hmm. someone's like let's watch it again and i was like yeah and then i started thinking about it i'm like that was really stupid <laughs> that was stupid yeah it's the also fall is that, definitely one of those movies it keeps you talking as you're going away yeah so you keep talking about it afterwards and you you want to go back and watch it again. most of what christopher nolan does is like this as well where it's like i feel like I, it's not just well christopher nolan's i feel there's a difference 
I feel like Christopher Nolan movies, you want to watch them again because you know you missed something. But the stuff I put on the list for us to talk about are movies that, no, no, the film ended, you got it. Yeah. <laughs> but then when you watch it again, you see something else. Yeah. You see it from a whole new perspective. Um, I, I remember when Fight Club first came out, I saw it four times in the theater and I saw a different movie each time I watched it. That hundred percent, I I gel with that. I definitely um, one of the one of those movies for me is Ocean's Eleven. I have watched that movie so many times. I'll actually when I first moved to New Zealand, uh, there were no laptops or I didn't have a computer or anything. Uh, and the one DVD that wasn't scratched from the move that I could watch on my mobile DVD player because those were things back in the day, kids. Portable DVD players were a thing in the mid two thousands. Um, Ocean's Eleven was the only one that wasn't scratched. And for every night, I'm not kidding you, for the first six months of me living there, every night I watched Ocean's Eleven. Whether I fell asleep with it or I watched the whole thing, I can quote it, I can blah, blah, blah. But the most important thing is I keep picking up like these little, not just, not just acting choices or line choices or whatever, the direction and, and the visual style and the music cues. And like, there's these little things that you start thinking about in a completely different way where you're like, Oh no, but what if what if that's what they meant to do? This is what they're trying to evoke and this is this is what they're trying to lead you to because the very next thing is but there's like an inherent joy in watching a movie where you know what's coming next. Mm -hmm. You know, and I think that is probably what feeds into the rewatchability of a movie like The Fall. Um and I definitely like the other thing because we were going to talk about cinematography in a film, but we decided to do this instead. The Fall is a beautifully shot movie. Absolutely. The color choices, man. Like, well, what? for me, for me, it's so the basic plot of the fall is that this Hollywood stuntman who injured himself is in a hospital and befriends this little Romanian girl. Um, she works in California with her family uh, as migrant orange pickers, and he fell, broke her arm, and is in the same hospital. And he starts telling her the story. It takes place in two worlds in this 1920s silent film era hospital and also in the world of the story he's telling. It's fascinating because partway through you start looking around and going, hey, you know all of the characters in the story he's telling are also bit parts in our 1930s world. Yeah. And by the end you realize you're hearing this story through his voice, but seeing it through her eyes. So what is a, a young girl who didn't grow up in America, see these things. What does she imagine? Yeah. So then you watch it a second time, and all of a sudden you're like, oh, he's just telling a Western. Yeah. He's talking about the evil sheriff, and he, he talks about the, the Indian chief, but she's from Europe. So Indian chief means a guy with a Sikh turban, and his defining trait is, is based off of what she has seen. And the same thing with, you know, one of the other cowboys, she just thinks the guy is a pirate because he doesn't have a leg and that's all she pictures. But then you just see the whole movie completely differently because now you're like going from the beginning going, if this is through her eyes, what else are we seeing? It's the contrast of an adult sense of experience uh, and, and uh, I guess like even a, even a level of, of darkness and depression mixed with the pure joy and and 
free-flowing imagination of a child, the innocence of a child. Those two things don't feel like they would mesh that well together because we've seen that story before in so many other styles. But for whatever reason, it created this beautiful dreamscape where nothing but also everything somehow made sense. Well, and I just, I really do view Tarsim Singh as, as a hero of mine because he made this as a passion project uh, for multiple reasons because he had... The Cell was his big one before that. And I thought The Cell was a beautiful movie. Mm. Uh, really brought in a lot of like, you could see the attention to modern art elements that he he drew from when he did this. And it was great, but he got accused of over-relying on visual effects. So he made this entire film. Practical. For that purpose. Yeah. And he's like, everything's a practical effect. Everything is on location. There's no fake sets that I build up. Yeah. I just... He spent three years of his life taking films or taking commercials that he'd be like, yep, yeah, well, we got to shoot this in Peru. They're like, oh, okay. It's like, great. Why? He's like, yeah, it just has to be done in Peru. So he'd shoot in Peru. And then while he was down there, he would fly those cast members he needed down to Peru right. and go, we got to shoot for like three days. The equipment's here. Let's go. Let's go. Let's go. And one of my favorite shots, I think the fact that the location was so desolate, deserted, monochrome, my favorite shot is the red scarf that blood red scarf flying up in the air and just yeah. i don't know like anytime i think of that movie i think of that and i think of the blood spilled but also the romance of it and you know tarsum Singh's love for the story and like there's just there's just a multitude of things you can draw from that film just specifically from the visual style yeah absolutely so I, I definitely i would put that under rewatchable the movie that i really wanted to talk about on the list that you put together was scott pilgrim <laughs> Scott Pilgrim is uh, my shit. <laughs> it's so good. Michael Sarah is amazing. Uh, Mary Elizabeth Winstead is sexy as hell. This is where we get our first real, like, acting chop Brie Larson look oh and God. realize how much range this girl's got. Like, we knew she could do Captain Marvel before she was even considered. We knew she was going to win an Oscar just based on this performance. This movie is balls off the walls crazy. When I watched this movie the first time, I didn't realize what I was getting myself into. I don't think anyone did. I mean, maybe people that read the comic books, but I hadn't, or graphic novel, but I was familiar with its existence, but not with it. I had never seen it or read it, so... I think even at the time, like, actually, especially at that time, because the movie came out in 09, I think it was, that was around a time where we didn't really, we didn't trust the comic book to film adaptation uh, process because a lot of them have been letdowns or mediocre at the very least. But, like, this movie was, I think, one of the first movies I watched where the visual style was really, like, it was kind of a precursor to Into the Spider-Verse. And that kind of idea of bringing, like, a comic visual style and sensibility to a film and making it work. Well, making it work, exactly. Because Ang Lee did it with the first Hulk, but it was like, how did you make this boring? Yeah. <laughs> how did you do that? Ang Lee, two-time best, best director at the Oscars, and we didn't want him back for Hulk. <laughs> I mean, don't get me wrong. I've liked, I like, I loved Life of Pi. I think it's a beautiful movie. Very few times does a book turn into a movie and I go, yeah, that's what I wanted to see. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. It worked that way with that. It worked that way with Ender's Game. No, and, and Edgar Wright, who directed it, the same guy who did Shaun of the Dead, the same guy who did Baby Driver, the same guy who almost did a cut of Ant-Man that I still would love to oh see God. at some point. I, yeah, that was... That, that felt like, that was a marriage made in hell. <laughs> Bill and Chris Lord's solo. Like, Ron Howard's great and all, but 
they were right to make that movie and marvel a lot of missed opportunities guys what are y'all doing why are you driving away your creatives come on now give us what we want no but scott pilgrim is uh for those of you who don't know is a story about a guy who is uh down on his luck and but ends up meeting this really enigmatic kind of really cool girl who it turns out later has a secret past of relationships that all come back to haunt him uh, just as he's getting into her. And what's great about that is that it's literally what you just defined. If no one has seen this movie <laughs> and they hear this, like, what the fuck? It, no, it just sounds like every other indie film that's, that's ever been made by that description. But then you add the fact that it's told entirely through video game metaphors. And with video game visual cues too. Exactly. When he, <laughs> the seven deadly X's are like the bosses in video games. And every time he defeats one of them, coins drop out of the air. Yeah. And the best part of it is it's Canadian. So it's loonies and toonies dropping on the ground. Like, how do you, whatever lab they concocted the screenplay in, I want to be a fly on the wall go back in time, be a fly on the wall, and see what those conversations were like. You know, Edgar Wright is one of those directors, too, where it's the same thing with uh, Tarsem Sang. You know, we talked about two-time Best Picture winner Ang Lee, and mm. we've, we've seen it from some other people, but, you know, uh, or same with Wes Anderson, too. I don't think we've seen their film yet. Mm. Dude, they're still so busy exploring, but the potential... I mean, I, I don't get me wrong. I think they're great films, but when that right script comes along, these people are going to sweep. Yeah. You know? It's just... And everybody's going to be behind the ball and we're like, what have they done before? Like, we've been, we've been there from the moment they, we knew they were good. It's kind of it's like everybody who's into Bong Joon-ho films and not afraid of international films before Parasite came out. Uh-huh. You know? Like, we watched the Oscars this year and yes, we were excited that he won Best Director and Best Picture. But like we also knew this was gonna ha- this was an eventuality. This was going to happen. I feel like at least uh, people in the industry, it's when when those guys win, it, it feels like one of us won. Yeah. Because yeah. Snow, Snowpiercer felt like one of our movies. Like it's like oh, I would have made that film. Yeah, because it comes from a mind that's like that's like ours, where it's like oh, what is the, like this crazy ass idea that nobody else seems to be brave enough to do. And look at this person who did it and did it with with zeal, with style, with like real technical prowess. I I don't know, I don't know, man. It's it's these type of directors that end up getting shafted later on in their careers too, because they don't, they continue to stay underground. Well, uh, also the danger I think is too, is that, you know, you got to make the passion project. You got to make the big one that keeps your name in, in light. So for every Schindler's list, there had to be a ready player one. Yeah. Which, Which is a rewatchable movie too. I kind of like that movie. Yeah. <laughs> Don't get it. It's, it's fine. It's a fine movie. The movie is re- more rewatchable than the book is rereadable. I, and I liked the The book was a prime example of what I was talking about with Moulin Rouge. I loved the book the first time I read it. Read it. Mm-hmm. And then I watched it or read it a second time. I was like, ah, that was so good. I'm going to reread it. And I realized it was a reliance on my own sense of nostalgia to generate emotion. And that, it happened a little in the movie, but the movie was the was the book to where I'm like, yeah, I can rewatch it and it's still entertaining. But it was that same idea for me where it was like, is that 
a great moment? Do I feel great about it or do I like it because you referenced a movie that I too love? Yeah, yeah, I get that. If it, it feels like a cheap hook almost. Well, and it is. And actors or directors, they use it all the time. It's actually, to me, one of the biggest challenges of independent filmmaking is that you aren't using familiar actors. You aren't mm -hmm. using names. So I can't cheat and make the audience immediately love Arneet's character because it's Arneet. Yeah. His family will feel that way. His friends will feel that way. But I can't go, well, I don't really have to develop this Chris Pratt character because it's Chris Pratt and people right. Chris Pratt, Chris Pratt. Yeah. And again, it's nothing against Chris Pratt, but it is an over-reliance on... Using a brand to build a brand yeah, exactly. that's not original. That, that's just brand marketing. That's not art. Yeah. That's going, oh, I identify with this Campbell soup can drawing because I too know what a Campbell soup can looks like. Right, right. But I think it's interesting that you bring that up then because, I mean, Scott Pilgrim is based on a set of graphic novel and comics. Like, it's, right, it's right. based on existing IP. But what I think makes it work and what makes it so rewatchable is that when Edgar Wright came in and directed it and made it, he, he put his own ideas and, yes. and style yeah. into it. And I think as long as you're taking existing IP or as long as you're taking somebody else's idea and you're putting your own spin on it, then it's imminently rewatchable because it feels authentic and yeah. it's it's kind of like how Jimi hendrix took all along the watchtower from bob dylan he could have just played it the same way bob dylan did but he didn't he infused his own sense of color and dynamism and personality in it and now yeah. to this day bob dylan plays Jimi hendrix's version of his own song well and it's uh, on that same note it's hurt by nine inch nails as done by johnny cash and Beautiful. Resner has said on more than one occasion that it's not even really a cover anymore. It's that's his. Yeah. It's no longer my song. And that that is, I can't I can't speak enough about people doing their own like the the idea of remixing art in your in your own identity is it's a beautiful thing to me. And not a lot of people can do it either. No, and there's ways of doing it. You know, I ragged on Andy Warhol, but he tried something. And it's more that there was some artist who just blew up a piece of a Marlboro ad and that was their thing. And they're like, yeah, and they're like, this is brilliant. I'm like, no, I'm sorry, it is not. Well, no one else thought of it. I'm like, <laughs> there's the difference between no one else thinking of something and no one else doing it. Because sometimes you just go, Could I? no, that's not art. I literally just you press the Zoom button on my Xerox machine. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, and I will go face-to-face -face questioning, well, I mean, what is art? I mean, that's a whole artist. It's literally in the eye of the beholder. So, yeah. you know, I didn't care for the Fifty Shades of Grey movie, but that is art to someone. Sure. That is okay. That is fine for them. If it can find its market. Yeah, and it, it definitely did. Three times. In Three times that yeah. someone took a fan fiction of Twilight that they had written, <laughs> got rid of the vampires, and added bondage that's a, that's it's the craziest thing to me that that's a near billion dollar franchise and that's for a different podcast though <laughs> hey you know like <laughs> we were re-watching the tv miniseries dinotopia and uh mm -hmm. realized that james cameron pulled an extreme amount of that stuff for avatar we were just like wait there's flying pterodactyl things that you have to bond with and do a trust flight and one guy ends up riding the unrideable special magical one. This sounds awfully familiar. Wait, are you? Yep. They 
he just straight up ripped it out of there. Straight up ripped it out. Of, I mean, I, wow. It's hard to prove it, but the books were around. I just know we watched it. And we're like, wait a minute. Well, how about this? How about we talk about an eminently original, straight out of the brain can idea? You were talking about Knives Out, sir. This Are you? Is, this is why we're perfect for each other. <laughs> yes, Knives Out. Maybe the best movie of last year, or at, least, at the very least, the best written movie of the last year. Well, actually, I guess on my list, the next several are all completely out of the brain. But Oh, totally. But I think Knives Out takes the cake for originality. Yeah. Uh, and, and thankfully proved again to people that without studio influence, a director knows what they're doing. Like, everyone gave Ryan Johnson so much, like, flack for what he did to the... The Last Jedi, which I will stand for every time the debate comes up. That's I thought it was me. great. I thought it was incredible. And that's because I'm somebody who's progressive and wants new ideas. Well, yeah, and that was, you know, for me, it was a breath of fresh air because The Force Awakened yeah. felt like fan service. A New Hope revitalized. Well, yeah, and not just that. It was like, it's been an issue. It was the same issue I had with Rogue One. It was the same issue I had with uh, Solo, mm-hmm. the Star Wars story, is that I'm like, everything in the canon didn't need to be important. Everything doesn't have to mean something. But there was all this like, can you believe what Ryan Johnson did to the story? Can you believe he just took whatever this was and made it nothing? Oh, can you believe this? And I'm like, what I can't believe is that you think Disney somehow just let him do whatever he wanted and And didn't look at the script until the world premiere. They, not only did they let him do what he wanted to do, because he's the only screenwriter aside from George Lucas who got to write an entire Star Wars feature film, and then on top of that, direct it and give him a two hundred million dollar budget for it. But they wanted him to—they want him to develop his own trilogy of Star Wars movies. That's how much they trusted the process and what he was thinking about. That's and and that's the director who made Knives Out. And anybody who has seen that movie will absolutely see what I'm talking about. He—he's a genius when it comes to crafting like real depth in characters and. On top of that, he spun the craziest mystery story I've seen in such a long time. Yeah, I I would be lying if I didn't say wanting to make The Dark Places wasn't partially inspired by, I want to do that. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm not going to do that. Because what he did was remade in Agatha Christie. What I wanted to do was something that felt a little more, what would Hitchcock do today? Long takes, you know, like pulling on that kind of stuff. Um, Mainly just because... (laughs) You know, I, I don't need to do another Knives Out. Knives Out did Knives Out. Yep. And did yep. it really, really well. But there's points where when we watched it a second time and a third time and a fourth time, <laughs> we were just like, oh, no, it's right there. Mm-hmm. Oh, no, the whodunit is right there. Absolutely. There's and, no question about it. So for anybody who hasn't seen it, it is just like a straight up murder mystery pulled out your of your favorite 40s, 50s, and 60s movies. Uh, about the murder of a very, very rich man and all of his heirs, his entire family and in-laws trying to get in on the inheritance. But the movie actually is focused around uh, his caretaker, who's played by Ana de Armas, who is incredible in the movie. Uh, a wonderful actress who was able to portray sweetness and innocence and then also simultaneously somehow be this like really strong, confident figure 
who takes on an entire family of would-be murderers. And then, and on top, the cherry on top of that is Daniel Craig doing his greatest, most outrageous Southern accent as uh, the detective whose name I'm forgetting right now. Blanc. Blanc, that's right. Weird mix of Louisiana, Alabama drawl, but like- Brian, they just, Chris Evans flat out just calls him out on the foghorn leghorn. Everybody realizes how crazy it is. And when's the last time that you heard in, in the press and media, an original movie character tabbed to be the center of like a string of movies. Like the next sequels are gonna be, like Ryan Johnson wants to write Blanc in many more mi murder mysteries. And I would- It's his new Poirot. And we haven't had that in a while. Like the closest thing we've had to a new Poirot in a while was Kenneth Branagh and the popular kids doing Hercule Poirot with the wrong mustache. I, I like him. I thought it was a. I thought Murder in the Orient Express was a beautiful movie. Mm -hmm. I'll go see Death on the Nile when it comes out. Mm -hmm. But I, I, as a Hercule Poirot fan, um, I hated the mustache because I'm like, that's not. It's a little, little tiny mustache. <laughs> it is a little tiny mustache, and he takes tiny little steps, and this is what he does. I like Kenneth Branagh, but I don't like his. He will cast people wrong for a role because they are popular and he wants to work with them and i'm like like natalie portman and thor like natalie portman and thor like most of the cast didn't much ado i like keanu reeves that was not a good role for him fake ass british accent there's so much wrong with that movie <laughs> i've seen it more than once yeah uh, especially when he stopped using his ex-wife emma thompson she was great like he cast her in all this stuff and i'm like good 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 thinking and she's also a chameleon who could fit any role. That's another great thing about Knives Out, though, is the casting is so good. You know? People that I did not expect to be as great as they were. Mm -hmm. uh, oh, God, what's his name? Um, Jamie Lee Curtis's... Oh, Don Johnson. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like, no, Don, I'm like, Don Johnson, where did you pull Don Johnson? <laughs> his daughter had more of a career than he did at that point. But yeah, yeah no, I mean, like Chris Evans coming off of Captain America and the Avengers, who, like, I, I am such a huge fan of him, too. Yeah. Um, so I was curious work. to see what he was going to do with the rest of his career because he's so synonymous with Captain America now. Like, he is my Captain America. And then he comes in and knives out and is this, like, pretty spoiled rich brat who drives, like, this sick-ass BMW and ends up... But you you hate and love the whole movie. Oh, it's so... He's like, so... I want to hate you, but you're so, like, it's that... So charming. I will work with you. I will, as long as there is a role... I'm I'm slowly working on my my feature my next feature apparently starring Lee Pace. And Chris <laughs> yes, I would watch the shit out of that. I don't even care what the plot is; just those two going off each other. We'll put Ryan Reynolds in it. It'll be twelve angry men. <laughs> Only it won't be angry. I'll be like twelve slightly irritable men. Oh my god! Just mildly annoyed men. <laughs> No, but and 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 the thing is, is all of those actors played the hell out of their parts. And the great thing about the Ryan Johnson script is, none of the actors, none of the characters, really felt like they were just throwaway or there for the sake of plot necessarily. They were their own human beings, and I think that's something that, especially in an ensemble movie, uh, really lacks uh, in in other in other films of the genre and other examples. Well, and one thing that he did that I tried to draw from. Uh, in the dark places that I think worked. You have to make a balance between characters being a stereotype and characters being dynamic mm -hmm. because almost everyone skews too far one way or the other. Mm -hmm. So with this, I presented, you know, going back to dark places, I presented the writer with a challenge of these are the stereotypes I want. 
make them human. If they do something, that's great. I want that. I think it's hilarious. And but it's, that's who she is at the end. That's who she is. Yeah. Why did she do it? And so we add a scene later. It change, The pace just like drops out of everything else we've seen. And it's very unspoken quietness, please, I'm hurting, that, that this character needs. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, anything that we did in three weeks time, I don't expect to be the lifelong passion project that Ryan Johnson came out with, but. With the dark places, we did everything that we could within our power. I think we all put our whole heart into it. And, and it, it is hard to do in such a short time period. But that Knives Out is the example of what can be done when you have the right time and the right investment. It's clear that all of those actors were so into the story and like even they were as interested in getting to the final product as the director, as Ryan Johnson was. But it's also why movies like Avengers work. Let's, so one movie that I actually haven't seen that was on the list, uh, but I've always been keen to watch, I just never got around to it, is Gosford Park. Talk to me about that because I've also heard divisive things about that movie. Have you? Yeah, yeah. I mean, some people love it. Some people hate it. Some, like, yeah. the majority, I know it was nominated for Best Picture in 01. Oh. I think it lost to uh, Russell Crowe's A Beautiful Mind, which, admittedly, Tangent, was not the strongest movie year. So I also, I didn't give it too much credit. Yeah. Um, Gosford Park, it's an interesting movie because I had avoided it when I saw clips of it or stuff. It fell into that English patient it's a slight period upstairs downstairs it's the reason i don't watch downton abbey and that is for some people it is not for me mm-hmm. however uh the thing that sold me on it was my wife uh she was like no no you need to watch this you need to watch this and i was like okay i'll sit down and the first thing i noticed that i hadn't paid attention before is that it was a robert altman i'm like mm-hmm. oh that's interesting um i have a lot of respect for what he does it's a very unique style that i think can be hit or miss but I watched it and I enjoyed it and didn't really give too many more thoughts about it. But then I wanted to watch it again a few years later. And then it was actually uh, The Dark Places that made me want to watch it again because our writer, I was like, what are we thinking? What do we need to do? What's going on here? She's like, well, you know, it's about the busyness. It's about all of the, the stuff going on. How do we make a cacophony? How do we do this? A la Robert Altman. And I was like, well, which Robert Altmans are you thinking? are kind of influencing in you. She's like, well, a little bit um, MASH, mm-hmm. but a lot Gosford Park because there's a murder involved. So we should look at, um, we should look at Gosford Park. And we went back and rewatched it. And sure enough, the thing that makes Gosford Park re- so rewatchable is that those characters just have their own lives. And what's really, really interesting to me about it, uh, that made it and made me want to sort of draw in on my own picture was this idea that you have a central character of any story and most writers most directors most everyone go here's a central character and the world revolves around them but robert altman has this gift for going here's the central character and here's this other person in their life who has their own life and this person has their own life and these have their own lives yeah i mean without giving stuff away there are things happening in backgrounds of the dark places and Gosford Park that are connected that maybe come out to light as a big important detail later, but they don't always. And sometimes it's just someone reacting to two people having a conversation in the foreground and someone else is 30 feet behind him and they say something, you just see him go. (laughs) And then like 45 minutes later, it was like, oh, it's like blah, 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 keeps talking about. And you're like, they were 
they referenced the fact that they were listening into a conversation, mm -hmm. but we saw that. We just weren't looking for it because we were so fixated on what was right in front of us, what was in focus. Right. And so the rewatchability is about going, look beyond. Now the challenge is, um, it was easier for me because I couldn't cast extras right. in this film. <laughs> yeah. I, I really suppose my cat is the only extra in the film. <laughs> It does play it. I think it's more more of a cameo than a, than a, than an extra. Well, she just literally shows up, and I like this scene. If you really really look for it, where it's supposed to be a tense moment, and I kind of look down to the left and move, and I'm shooing the cat away with me. <laughs> yeah, dramatic moment, and you were like, "Go go away! You can't jump on my lap and take." And she's like, "Right." <laughs> Another I'm, technical constraint of filming in your own home. Yeah, well, I mean the dog is a character in the film purely because she was going to be in that film right right you weren't going to keep her out <laughs> a lot of time trying to explain to her that she it's very unprofessional to look right into the camera lens mm. uh, heidi will get there don't even worry give her a little more training she'll be fine yeah yeah but i want my own trailer <laughs> gosford park i mean it, i know what it's about and i and from the sounds of it it, I, it is it is a murder mystery on par with it's not a whodunit, but it definitely fits in the vein of like an Agatha Christie novel. Yeah, I mean, it was definitely influenced by, but it's almost like the murder's the least important part. It's uh, more about the characters. It's really more about the characters, but that's also very Robert Altman-y, I feel, that the plot always comes secondary to the life of the characters. Um, so if, if people were into Knives Out, I feel like they could translate oh, over to Gosford absolutely, Park. absolutely worth a watch. It's funny. That's what I don't think was properly conveyed, is that Again, it still has that sort of Downton Abbey-ish aesthetic, upstairs, downstairs situation, but it's funny. You yeah. will laugh at it a lot. And they do a great job of making you not go, oh, we're so rich and great and you servants are terrible. It's, we servants are great and you rich people are pathetic. I, uh, yeah, Bad Times the El Royale kind of tries to do the same thing and it does it in a really weird way that shouldn't work but it kind of does i did not i mean i knew i was gonna somewhat like it i did not expect to like that movie as much as i did i i picked it out of thin air i was just like oh yeah the the cover looks kind of nice you know those like you pick up a book just because oh yeah the artwork is kind of cool it's that movie i went into it and immediately immediately i'm hooked because john ham is in it and i'll watch anything with john ham because he makes some really weird choices after mad men I don't, um, I don't like John Hamm, but I, I keep kosher, so. I, I you know, I, he just, there's, there's. It's a joke. John, I like John Hamm. No, I get that. I'm, I'm continuing with it because that you're, is a you're joke. You're ignoring it. It's a, it's a joke that we all know is a joke because who doesn't love John Hamm? But he, like, I just watched him in the town and he plays an FBI agent and he fucking kills it. He's in a Disney movie and he's probably the only good thing about it, a baseball movie. And then he comes in this and he's playing like, like a less than dominant officer of the law and he's so integral to the start of the movie and you buy into him immediately and the whole even just the vibe the setting of the movie the the isolation of it is immediately compelling god love him it is the best thing i've seen jeff bridges do in so long so good well and that and that to me was the the like I had to rewatch it several times because the first time I watched it, I couldn't get over the performances this director had pulled out of people. Oh my God. Like people I love that I'm like, oh, you're good. I didn't know 
Jeff Bridges is a perfect example. I've, I've followed Jeff Bridges for ages. I, I didn't see that coming from him. Yeah, iconic wise, to me, this is, this is going back to Lebowski days as far as like, this is such a, this is this character and you got him complete and the emotional range that he goes through and the way you feel as an audience member about him. But So you're saying in a quarter century, this is the best role he's had? I, maybe. Because Lebowski was 82, right? I just know that Lebowski was such an iconic character and then he kind of was playing that for a while. And this is like, and then he got out of playing that and was doing some other stuff. And I'm like, okay, okay, okay. These are great. I enjoy these. Again, True Grit, he did a great job. It's always hard when you're remaking an iconic film. So yeah, for me, I was just like, with some of the stuff he was pulling on that. Same with Dakota Johnson. I only knew her from the Fifty Shades movie, which I watched drunk one night because I felt the need to. <laughs> I, I'm one of those people that believes firmly that if you only watch good movies, you will be trying to reach a, a, a finish line That's as an artist that you may never get to. But if yeah. you can watch the bad stuff, you can learn from other people's mistakes. And I, I will go on record saying, I thought... Fifty Shades of Grey was a terrible film. I watched Fifty Shades Sober. You don't have to qualify it. I watched it because I wanted to. Is that the fourth to... one or the third one? I, I think I just watched the first 50 one. Fifty Shades, Fifty Shades Freed, Fifty Shades Sober, Fifty so, Shades Drunk Off Sober is one of the... <laughs> I you, the only way you know how to joke about that is if you actually knew what the titles were. I only know the second title because I made a joke because <laughs> a friend of mine's last name is Freed. And so oh, I took a okay. picture of him and another guy hugging each other that we had to play. <laughs> I was like, oh, it's the new poster, Fifty Shades Freed. And he's like, oh my God. Oh, that's great. No, I, like the reason that Chris I like- Chris Hemsworth, his performance in it, you're just like, he was a, another prime example. I like Chris Hemsworth. I think his Thor is fun. I didn't know he had that performance in him. That, he's essentially playing Charles Manson. He played, dude, absolutely. He's so sinister and he's so evil. But he's also so like charming. You get why people, you get how that happens, and that's what I yeah. thought was so great because there have been too many Charles Manson things. It's it's when um what's his face? I can't remember the guy's name right now. Uh, Zac Efron. We mm. certainly played Ted Bundy, and there was this big yeah. like backlash that he was too attractive and too charming, and everyone's going, "That's that's who he was. Yeah. This is how he got away with what he did." This is why he's dangerous. Ted Bundy wasn't that attractive, and they put a picture up, and like, for the yeah. time period, he kind of was. And let's not bury the lead either, because this movie certainly did. Hemsworth doesn't show up until the second half of the movie, right. and he basically steals it by the end. He's got it in a sack and walks away a free man. Uh, the, the best part about the film, I think, is the fact that we've just told you a whole lot of stuff, and we have given nothing away to the plot. Like, the fact that he's Charles Manson, you figure out in like a minute. Oh, yeah. Because his character's been talked about for so long yeah. that when he shows up, you're like, yeah, okay. Yeah. The thing uh, I was going to say about Dakota Johnson, though, is like because of those Fifty Shade movies, and that's kind of like, that was every most people's introduction to her. Going from that character and then seeing what other things she can do, and like, she is, she's dynamic. They didn't direct her at all in the Fifty Shades movies. She was left to her own devices and was like this curled up little ball the whole time. And like, in every other movie that I've seen her in, she's she is confident take charge, like just such a colorful actress when she gets on screen. I've, I've loved her ever since I've seen this movie and I'm going to love her in every other one because she has, I think she has the same tenacity that her dad does, mm -hmm. um, you know, where it really is like, I don't care what you think about me. 
I am who I am. I was Nash Bridges. Right, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but the, the, she, she makes the movie, she makes her role so fun to watch. Um, and Cynthia Ervo also. Uh, her Is she first, the one that plays the sister? She's the, yeah, I think, or, or the singer, the singer. The singer, oh my God. I, I really did not know who she was. She just got nominated for an Oscar for playing uh, Harriet Tubman. Oh, oh, okay. Yeah. yeah, I hadn't, I'm bad about following actors' careers, and but she was someone I was like, I don't know who you are. Yeah. Why don't I know who you are? And you want that in a movie where it's just like, and, and I want to say to whoever's watching, listening right now is that, to me, one of the, the biggest standouts about all the movies that I think we've talked about so far is that for being able to discuss them so academically, so um, like, you know, our neat and I sitting here waxing philosophical about the aesthetics and all this stuff, these are just enjoyable movies. And that's what- Super entertaining. Because uh, that's a big thing for me as far as like the movies I watch is that it can't just be pretty. It can't, I've seen a lot of movies that are very pretty and I go, oh, this is beautiful. <laughs> There's no substance. Where is it, you know? Yeah. <laughs> or or these, a lot of films that get nominated for Oscar, nothing that we've talked about was nominated for an Oscar as far as I know. Uh, I think only, well, no, Gosford Park, Best Picture. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, Scott Pilgrim for some technical awards. Definitely not the last one we're gonna talk about. Um, Knives <laughs> Out was nominated. <laughs> we'll get I was there. like, what do you mean? Oh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, we'll, we'll get there and you'll all know. <laughs> uh, definitely not bad times. Knives Out, uh, rightfully so, was nominated for Best Writing um, last year. But I think I didn't it, get it. It, it lost, it lost to Parasite. Rabbit. I thought it lost to Jojo Rabbit. No, because Knives Out isn't, no, it's not adapted. It, it was nominated in an original screenplay. Oh, oh, so different, yeah, different categories. Jojo yeah. Rabbit was adapted from a book so it's adapted screenplay which jojo rabbit at some point uh for all of you guys i will talk about it because it is it's definitely like it's divisive enough that there's a debate to it and an argument to it whether you like it or not um but i think it's a beautiful movie and i want to convince you to come to the dark side of the force on that one i'm 100 percent with you on this one is that all the people that are like yeah but it's just all like they're all it's pro-nazi like, it is not pro-nazi <laughs> Anybody who says that just it completely misses the point of that film. It's the, the whole point is how ridiculous they are. Mm -hmm. That yep. Heil scene where I think in like oh, a minute and a oh, half they oh, say oh. Heil 31 times. So good. I, I actually followed along with that movie with the script. I downloaded it online. And the script has Heil, 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 Heil written in for every character, including Gestapo 1, Gestapo 2, Gestapo 3. Like that was all in... Well, and you just you don't cast Stephen Merchant in a movie if it's going to be taking anything that seriously. The guy's great, but genius. genius. I just replayed Portal Two, and I was just like, "You are so ridiculous." Like, <laughs> He's so good. Oh my god! But uh, before we lose everybody, because this is going longer than I thought it would, <laughs> um, Snakes on a Plane, and this is why we were saying it has not won an Oscar, but. We are probably not alone when we say it is maybe one of the greatest and also dumbest rewatchable movies in the world. It's so good. That's the thing. Like <sighs> all the things that make a picture great, it has visually it's stimulating. The writing, this is this is to me where that movie succeeds 
better than most movies I've seen is that most films don't know what they are. Like, even like the bad B movie style, like cheaply made horror film, Lava Lanchula, the <laughs> earthquake that ate Paris, whatever ridiculous movie you want. They are somewhere along the line, someone involved in the process thinks that they are making something better than what they're making. Or you get movies where you can see the people in them going, I am so much better than this film. Mm -hmm. The people in Snakes on a Plane knew they were making a movie called Snakes on a Plane and were happy about that fact. They didn't take themselves overly seriously, but they also didn't sit there and give the side eye to the audience the whole time going, I mean, you know I'm better than this, right? They committed just as fully as they would have to anything else they did. It showed to me. Bobby Cannavale who's gone on to make, you know, he's been an Ant-Man. He's really just kind of... Won an Emmy for Boardwalk Empire a while back. Great, great work. Is having a blast in it. And is doing a great job. And that's the the other thing. The actors, you can see them. They're they're having as much fun making the shit as everybody else is. They're just, they're there for the ride the whole time. But it's rewatchable because sometimes you just want to shut your brain off and watch something that that ticks all those boxes of making a good film without also having to make you think. Yeah. There's no thinking in Snakes on a Plane, and they know that. And that's why, you know, there's the whole story that the studio is like, oh, we got Samuel L. Jackson. We need to rechange this. Let's call it Terror on Flight 1083. And he goes, I will quit this film if it is not called Snakes on a Plane. <laughs> is that true? <laughs> he took the role, supposedly, without ever reading the script, just because someone he got sent a script that said snakes on a plane. He's like, I'm in. <laughs> That's awesome. And the funniest part is that snakes on a plane is apparently a real term to describe the, the uh, electrical cabling conduits that run underneath the thing, That's all of the overwinding colored conduits that like, if you look down in a plane, connect the ailerons to the flaps. To it the, looks like a snake. And they're like, plane. oh, the snakes on a plane. And I believe that's where the term came from originally. I mean, either way, like, because of that title, do we even really need to sit here and talk about what the plot is? It's about snakes on a plane. And that's the magic of it. Even if you've never seen it before, never heard of it before, if you see it on Netflix, Amazon, whatever, and you see that title, you're like, yeah, okay, because it's telling me what it is. There's, there's, no, there's no guesswork involved. And Sam Jackson is so iconic in every line that he says in that movie right down to actually saying the title of the movie. The, the brilliant song. It should have been nominated for Academy Award, in my opinion, because I was like, this is catchy and great. And <laughs> there's a music video that's just as great, and I love everything about it. But I think, don't, wouldn't you think that, like, the people that made this movie, they would also, like, the two, this is a conversation that I want to have with everybody in the world who is an artist. Is like, if you are looking for critical acclaim, you are not going to get critical acclaim. And certainly not as often as you think. It's like when you write a song, you can't go into it saying, I'm going write to a, write a number one song. Because more often than not, it's not going to happen for multitude of reasons. A, you overthink it. Two, you take yourself too seriously. No, no, Three, no, no. Your ego gets involved. Are, and, uh, yeah. This is a conversation you and I have had a lot before, is that if you are seeking fame you will not find it. If you were seeking glory, you're always, because you're only chasing what you think other people will accept. 
So your your right your bar is is here. It's visible to me. Fame comes from being groundbreaking, from challenging what else is out there. It's not looking at, and conversely, it's also not looking at what is everyone else doing. I'm going to do something different. It's just the way you go. I have this thing I have to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, I have this movie I have to make. There's something inside me that I need to get out. Yeah, and that is artistry at its core. Yeah. I, even as an artist, I fail, I've made shorts and features and stuff that I was just like, yeah, my heart wasn't as in it. And that's why I couldn't direct it that well, because I was like, I, I like it, but it's not, it's yeah. not my dream. It's not my passion. It's not my goal. I want, I want this. And, and, you know, I think uh, the conclusion, two conclusions you can draw are first is if you are looking to, find a claim, find, be award worthy, be praise worthy, then it's not going to happen because if you're chasing that, you're not chasing what's actually going to make you reputable, right? If you are out there to make art, if you're out there to express yourself, which is what this shit is, then we're going to be noticed. And then, and the other part of it is with Snakes on a Plane, the directors and the writers, they weren't looking for Oscar glory because they just wanted to write some super cool shit. And you know what they came up with? Maybe one of the biggest cult movies in the last 20 years. The fact that we're talking about a movie called Snakes on a Plane in the year 2020, like nearly 15 years after it was made, that's a testament to real filmmaking. Mm -hmm. And it's a weird thing to say. And unless you've been on the ride with us this entire podcast, listening to what we've been talking about, you were not going to understand how that can make sense. But it's, it's so true. And like, the more you think about it as a creative, the more you're like, you know what? None of what anybody else is saying matters. The way I feel is what's going to get me to to the promised land. There you go. There you go. Is that the end of the podcast? Shit, we ended it on a good note. <laughs> I think we I think we should. Also, I'm going to just throw out a suggestion. You may want a part one and part two. Yeah, probably. Probably. Otherwise, it's an hour and a half. I thought we were pretty entertaining. I felt like we were entertaining human beings this whole time. Oh, sure. Yeah, you just got to think about whether or not you want to hold someone's attention for the whole length of time. Yeah. Is that is that the end? Can I turn the AC back on? I. <laughs> you know what? Yeah, let, let, let's just send him off. So, again, right. his name is Ned Record. His new movie, The Dark Places, produced by Hollywood Shakespeare, is coming out May 14th on Amazon and Amazon Prime. Uh, it's going to be awesome, and we're going to be right with you on the release date, and uh, let us know how we did. My name is Arneet Singh. I've been your host. This is the Async Podcast, and I will see you all next week. Thank you so much for tuning in, and uh, hopefully we'll see this guy again soon. Let's find out. Stay sharp, stay motivated. Peace out.